You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor Marks, and joining me is that wily person, that that willful individual, that wonderful William Gallagher. Okay. You've just, I mean, you're often dropping the odd thing I have to respond to like that, but that was a whole list of them. Is that to make up for the fact that last week I sat here on my own talking to myself about WWDC just because you had Dan on live from the venue itself? Yes. Yes, it is. I'd have done the same. (laughs) Okay, right. That was a good show, I thought, but I really... I am well, but I, I mean, I've, you've been to lots of events. I've been to lots of events and things. Uh, you kind of get your fill of them, but not WWDC. That's one I'd love to go. So hearing from Dan right there, I thought that was a really interesting episode. Yeah. What's interesting is that we all know that that's not a consumer hardware event. Yes. Right. It's an event for developers to get an understanding of what's coming in the future. And yet the keynote is used as an opportunity to talk about hardware and to talk about where things are today. Right. Yes. And and you and I had discussed whether or not there'd be something introduced there. What was that? Because I think I'd placed bets that we were, and you'd said no. What, what happened there? Uh, I, I was putting money on uh, Swift UI uh, coming out with that name, uh, doing exactly what it does. So, uh, ka-ching, I think I, I won there. Or do you mean the Mac Pro, which I was certain they wouldn't show? And I had asked them to do that, right? I was I was saying, I really wish that they would. And here enough, sure enough, we got something, didn't we? No, 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 wait a second. I mean, let's not split some hairs here, but I was sure they wouldn't, and you wished they would. So the fact that they did, you're taking that as a win for you, that you were right. But you weren't right or wrong, you were just wishing. I was definitively wrong. I own my wrongness. (laughs) All I'm saying is not whether or not I was right. What I'm suggesting is that when you wish, it makes no difference who you are. Okay. That right. dreams do come true. I wonder if that's certain or not. I can think of people who could wish for things and then afford to get them. Anyway, yeah, but they aren't that's me. probably... No, okay. All right, well, as long as we've <laughs> these right. things up. So, right. talking about things that are futuristic and cool, Apple has been looking at different ways to display pre-rendered 3D video in a stereoscopic method. What do you think they'd use stereoscopic views for? Traditionally, what do we use those for? Uh, Traditionally, for pictures of ancient New York in those little readers where you've got two photographs side by side and it all looks 3D and it's brilliant. Yeah, the two lenses side by side with the photograph mounted, two photographs mounted a couple, you know, about a foot and a half away, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Stereoscopic vision. When was that stuff invented, I wonder? I'm guessing probably roughly alongside photography. 18, 17. Well, photography really came into its own in the mid-1800s. Stereoscopic view, stereoscopics. I'm not exactly Uh, sure. I think I have uh, a book of old New York stereoscopic photographs from early 1900s. You know what? I'm I'm mistaken. You're, You're right. Just as early as photography came into vogue, stereoscopes, which is what those things are called, came into popularity from the 1850s to about the 1930s. 
<laughs> Isn't it funny how 3D comes in with a bang and then whimpers away and comes back with a bang? And we're still doing that today. We're now post the latest 3D thing. Let's get ready for the next one. Yeah. No, so the, the earliest stereoscope was 1838. And the, the common one that you and I are thinking of it was, was an Oliver Wendell Holmes invention and came around in 1861. Well... And we're still talking about it today. And we're still talking about it. And we're talking about it because Apple has been looking at ways to do that for what we suspect would be a virtual reality or augmented reality headset. Okay, I'm less excited by all this because until it looks like a holodeck, I'm not that interested. But I have enjoyed how Apple's done uh, augmented reality with the reveal of its new products. I put the new um, Apple Pro Display on my desk uh, virtually. It'll never be on there, really. But it was fun to see just how big that thing is. And then to examine the new Mac Pro and pull it apart. Although that was a really clever use of technology. So good on Apple. I, and I took more. a cheese grater and an iPad mini and I put them next to each other. And I squinted real hard and pretended. Which of us is sadder? Answers on a tweet to... <laughs> but well, it's... no, you win because you get the cheese at the end. Okay, mm. all right. Cheese. Yes. yes. Yes, Gromit. So okay. so Apple's cheesifying everything in a pretty 3D much. way. How much do we actually know, though? Because you, you clearly know more about this than I do. Um, and I imagine Apple isn't saying anything. So what do we know? Well, what we know is that Apple has purchased in the past people that make micro displays. That is micro LEDs that are are very, very small on the order of microns. And those tend to be based on, on gallium nitrate or GAN technology because that's the only way to get them small enough. And the benefit is that you get a lot of power savings and they're very bright, which is what you need for augmented reality. So it's it's pretty sure bet that Apple's working on that. This idea of stereoscopy that they're working on only adds fuel to that fire. So they filed a patent. They've got an application that says stereoscopic rendering of virtual 3D objects. Well, they showed us at WWDC about occlusion, so people can be occluded by 3D objects, which makes it that much more realistic that you're working in a 3D space. And so if you can do that, and you can put up 3D rendered objects pre-rendered objects in front of them in the glasses, then it's just about making it that much more real, that much more engaging. The other day, Tim Cook was uh, talking about the Statue of Liberty app, and and I got that. It is utterly fascinating being able to just place it in your living room floor and walk around it and inside it and examine the construction of it. These things are genuinely useful, and the 3D-nessness of it is actually becoming real. I'm, I don't want to sound cynical about all this stuff, but I've been surprised to how good these experiences have been. So, yes, good on Apple. Let's render stereoscopically everything we can. You know, that's interesting when you mentioned Statue of Liberty, because I, I've been up to the crown of the Statue of Liberty, but no one has been up to the arm of the Statue of Liberty unless you work for the National Park Service in decades. No. The arm has been closed, and, and, you know, that's been over worries about things like 
the stability of the arm under stress from not many people walking up and down it, or yeah. it's been about weight, or it's been about the idea that you just can't, you know, there's there's no real safety because you're up there and you could go over the ledge kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to me because if we have this sort of augmented reality that's truly immersive, then those experiences that are off limits to most of us could be ones that we could live through vicariously. Yes, I mean, I still would rather go there than see it this way. But yes, I did exactly that. I because same as you, I knew I couldn't get into the torch before, so I did through this. Um, and I looked down at what a long fall it would be. <laughs> and the sound of the birds around me, which actually I wasn't expecting. Nice little touch of detail there for it. It felt like you could hear the wind as well. So it's very nice. Nice, really nice. You know, there are all kinds of problems that have to be solved around this. And they aren't all things like stereoscopy or people occlusion. It's, it's as well as thermal regulation, right? Or just the weight of the headset. Because if you have something that's big and bulky or you have something that doesn't fit well or it gets hot, it takes you out of that immersion. It makes it uncomfortable to wear. There are a lot of problems to be solved here. But we are fairly certain that Apple is working on it. And they've been working on it for years. Right. I just wonder how they're going to solve the wallet stealing uh, option. I mean, I think Apple's very fond of our wallets, but there you are with this headset on uh, and you can't see what's actually around you. So you, you get mugged. Um, well, no, no, no. Holodeck Augmented wins, reality you know? means that you see what's in front of you as well. Right. And I tiptoe up right. behind you. Virtual reality is is you're blocked off and viewing only what's projected, but but augmented reality or mixed reality is where anything that has a headset though is going to affect your view of the actual world around you. But, so but William, if you put all of your wallet in Apple Wallet, you don't have to worry about this. Okay, news would be an answer. All right, <laughs> get there. Now, you know we we know that this is the kind of thing that's being worked on, not just from the the occlusion that they showed us at WWDC, but there are many changes in ARKit 3 and iOS 13. Hmm. Green screen style stuff. effects, you know, oh, that, yes. that's kind of big, without needing a chroma key background. Um, that, that, I've got to try that out, because I, I did green screen stuff at, uh, at BBC, just very basic stuff for one of the websites, and, and it's remarkably hard, actually, trying to get, because the, uh, the, the actual green screen, um, there was some sort of pop mark on it, so to get rid of it completely was a, a right Right, pain. light on the uh, screen so, or, or a reflection of the green onto a person's clothing standing in yes. front of it or you know, all of these kinds of details matter. And mm -hmm. I have a green screen here at the house and it, it can sometimes be a little difficult if you haven't got it lit correctly. Wait, so that postcard you sent me from Mars was fake? Don't you know we're going to skip the moon and go straight to Mars? Yes, of course, just... that was, it was real. I was there, man. It was warm unseasonably warm okay right they don't call it the red planet for nothing no i believe you have to pay uh anyway <laughs> uh, every time you say occlusion i've got to say this i am thrown back 20 years is it longer to the 80s how long goes the 80s got nearly 40 years to recursive oh. occlusion in doctor who uh castrovalva if you uh you're probably so young you didn't even see that on repeat but that's just a tom baker episode uh, Peter Davison, his first. Nope, didn't see it. Nope. So Christopher Bidman wrote it. Yay to Castrovalva, based on the Escher print. Look at the sort of level of detail I can give you about things that you're not interested in. It's a skill. That's so true. 
Thanks. It's funny when I said it. <laughs> Less so now. But they've Do also we... added motion Apple. Apple. This is a podcast about Apple. They added motion yeah. capture capabilities. So the movements of a subject can be analyzed, interpreted real time in the application. So yes. you divide the subject down to a skeleton with joints and bones, determined and monitored for changes, and with those movements, trigger animations. Or, or they can be recorded for custom movements of characters, which is cool. It also impacts face tracking, which is cool. You know, face tracking currently is used for Memoji and Snapchat kind of thing, but it's been expanded to allow it to work with up to three faces at the same time. No, I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. Another key component is, is of course, for users to be able to collaborate within the same AR environment. So by letting people yes. see the same items in the same environment in a single session, you can enable multiplayer games. And of course, we were looking at that Minecraft game that they displayed because that's super cool. Um, the ability to tra track the user's face and the world using the front and rear cameras at the same time, detecting up to 100 images at the same time, and estimates of physical image sizes, more robust 3D object detection, improved plane detection, the, all of these things are are leading us to a future where reality can be mixed, where reality can be shared, can be augmented. That augmented bit can be shared. That's a big deal. Yes, I'm a bit overwhelmed by it, actually, the amount of things going on. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'm just going to go back to waiting for the holodeck, but it sounds like it's soon. So, okay. Yes, please. The, well, please the question is one holodeck. I mean, we, we haven't really talked about the uses, but there have to be uses beyond just the IKEA catalog or Apple putting the Mac Pro stand that you're never going to purchase on your desk, right? Yes, I can think of uh, hostile environments, certain industrial plants, nuclear areas, where the ability to see, uh, I don't know, what a drone that you put in there is doing, to be able to manipulate in that fine detail, I can see that being uh, huge, yeah. Right, and and that's sort of a lame use in that that's what Google Glass has become, right? Google Glass was going to be this thing that everyone was going to wear and it was going to change everything, and it ended up being what the industrial worker wears. Yes. And that's a small, disappointing future as opposed to one where we all get these things. Now, obviously, wearing glasses can be obnoxious, just in terms of fit and, and, and actual comfort. And there are the same things that scared people about them with Google Glass, which is, are you recording me? Right? Yes. Yeah. But if we can overcome those things and the uses outweigh those, then it will work. So it's just a matter of, of first building the technologies so that we can even see and even get to those kinds of uses. Right? I know it sounds silly to try and say we have to build it first, but... If you think back, that's kind of how computing developed. Less deliberately, but yes, uh, here it is. What are we going to do about it? That was the way around. Yes. Okay, you're saying intentionally set it out. Uh, kind of the opposite of fake it till you make it, isn't it? Just make it and then fake it until you've sorted it out. Okay. Well, and, no and the Apple Watch developed along that way a little bit too, right? We had all these weird interfaces and things that you could do with the first Apple Watch that we later learned it doesn't make sense to do those at all. Yes, that's true. Yes, that seems such a long time ago now, weirdly. You know, it? the, the history yes. of computing was, okay, so it's glorified typewriter and that's awesome. And then all of a sudden a spreadsheet comes along. And, and then the next thing you know, you've eliminated a whole floor of an office building that we're doing spreadsheets on paper. 
Yes, sorry about that, but yeah, yes, yeah. And, and you should be when you put the, those people out of work. Well, no, I, I personally concentrated on the bit about uh, typewriters and that, which got yeah. rid of PAs and secretaries a lot, just destroyed the typing pool. Um, that that's my legacy. Yes. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Unbelievable. You you have you are a net job destroyer, William. Yes, and the more positive side, uh, a friend, a producer, uh, organizer was pointing out to me recently, writers went digital first. We beat everybody else. Everybody else is catching up with writers because the moment we could get word processors, we threw away everything else and are slaves to the screen ever since. Join us. It's true. It's it true. Is. So... The headset development first leaked in a safety report in 2017 where incidents requiring medical treatment beyond first aid were required for a person testing a prototype device at one of Apple's devices, at offices rather. Wow. The injury related to eye pain, suggesting it was testing something vision related, potentially a headset of some form. Grief. Okay. Yeah. That's Yikes. not where I thought you were going with that. <laughs> okay. um, I'm just laying out the evidence for how we know Apple's working on a headset. Um, right. Or going around poking its employees in the eye. It's one they, way or the other. Yeah. 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 No, they spoke to a lot of technology suppliers at CES uh, with, with Apple employees visiting stands as suppliers of waveguide hardware. They have acquired companies that are closely related to AR and headset production. They picked up eye tracking sensomotoric instruments. And they bought Aconia Holographics, which focused on development of specialized lenses for AR headsets. They picked up. Uh, Gosh, what was it, Lumos or Lumify or one of those for um, for uh, micro LED displays? Micro LED, yeah, micro LED displays. They've picked up a bunch of these different things along the way. So it's it's one of these futures that I feel like is coming together, and we're just seeing it in slow motion at this point. It'll all seem very obvious in retrospect. Well, of course, yeah. When it happens, they'll say, we showed you AR, and now we're bringing it to your face, right? That's This that's does it. seem to happen a lot with Apple. Um, something comes out and you think, oh, that rumor actually made total sense five years ago. Uh, but it didn't at the time. So, yes, who knows what other rumors we're missing. Well, and you're point. absolutely I'm right. around. You know, for years and years uh, at Apple Insider, we were talking about what was essentially, we were talking about a tablet Mac or a touchscreen Mac. And what we got was an iPad. So close. And yet so but, far. But we were talking about there. that in 2006. We were talking about that in 2005. We were talking about that pre-iPhone. Because they'd been working on the iPad first and shifted gears to the phone. Right. Uh, to be fair, I don't think we were uh, visionary innovators in our thinking there since Microsoft had tablets uh, out from, what, 99, 2000, somewhere around there? Well, this wasn't about being visionary and predictive. It was about going on the rumors and rumblings that we were hearing at the time. Oh, right. Okay. Well, 20 years later, we were right. Absolutely. Okay. Now, here's another one where you were right. Tell me about what's wrong with the new Mac Pro. Absolutely nothing at all. What could you possibly mean? Price. Yeah, okay. Yeah, small thing. Uh, I might not buy the two that I was considering. You know, one for the kitchen, one for the den. I might not do that. A third for Angela, because, you know. Well, you can't get them in blue. You know, that that was a bit of a blow, really. We have to talk to Colorware. We could get one made in blue. It's not the same. (sighs) 
Come on. Take it down to the local powder coating shop and have them just. <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't even know you. Okay. <sighs> All right. No. First party color only. Right. So way, so here's okay. here's the thing, right? It's the Mac Pro, the power to change everything. Now, yeah. you have the Mac Mini. Yes, I do. Is the Mac Mini very nice. expandable? No. And is that causing me a problem? Yes. You have an iMac, an older one now. Is the iMac a very yes. expandable machine? No, and it's quite ill at the moment. So let's let's not remind me about this. Yeah. And and there are plenty of people who have MacBooks and MacBook Pros, and those aren't very expandable machines either. No. Fortunately, their iPhones and their iPads, they're fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, there seems to be a number of people who really wanted a Mac Pro-like machine, but wanted to have it at a price they could afford. Yes. I mean, you're talking about an article I've written saying that there's a gap in Apple's market. But the reason I did that, uh, one of the reasons, apart from the fact that I believe it, uh, the reason that made me first think of it and then first look at the prices and then spot this, uh, just in the prices, there's this giant gap. In, okay, uh, so, so how much does a Mac Pro cost? Ooh, Mac Pro, 5,000, well, 6,000 pounds, 6 pounds, sorry, dollars. It probably will be 6,000 pounds, won't it? But 6,000 dollars and change for the monitor. All right. And there's the iMac and the iMac Pro, right? The iMac Pro costs how much? Yeah, Put you on the spot. Less, a bit less. I think the iMac works out at about a thousand uh, start. These are all starting prices. About a thousand dollars less than the Mac Pro. And the iMac is what? Three and a half, four thousand less than an iMac Pro. That's the gap in the middle. Everywhere else, the difference in price between models is comparatively small. Hmm. But I should say, I should expect, uh, there is this argument going around that Apple was wrong to make the Mac Pro. And you listen to people talking about this, and it always boils down to uh, these people would have rathered Apple had bought a machine that they could afford. And I don't see that as a valid criticism of the Mac Pro. You can wish for something else, but to criticise uh, Tesla's Roadster for not being a pencil sharpener seems a little bit of a fallacy to me. Mac Pro is a superb machine. Okay. Is it right for everybody? Yes, but not everybody can afford it. There might be room for more. That's all. Yeah, so the, the iMac, plain old, not, not Pro iMac, but iMac starts from $1,099 and goes up to, to essentially 1500 Yes. In the 21-inch. In the 27-inch, it, it reaches 2300 in price. And then yeah. the iMac Pro is significantly more. Right? The yes. iMac Pro begins at a infinitesimally small 4999 So what you're suggesting is that there's a gap between the, two I, the iMac and the iMac Pro part of the range. There is a gap in pricing. Yeah. There is a gap, I think, in utility. You can well argue that we're only talking about base prices and you can spec up all of these machines. Though, actually, I think that's a separate issue because, truly, I do not know how many cores will... Is an 8-core going to be right for me or a 10-core iMac Pro? That level of detail, I don't know how to determine. 
so Apple has chosen these starting points and they have laid out this line uh, of divisions between it. You need this machine or that machine. And then within the, the gaps, you can do these uh, adjustments. So I think it's valid to look at the starting points of them all. And when you do that, there is this enormous, well, it's a price gap, but I, I offer that it's a price performance gap as well. So what I'm hearing is that the product matrix is too confusing. I think that's harsh. It's we've gone on a long way since Steve Jobs is good of four. Um, I still think if you are in the market, you know whether you're in the market for a Mac Mini or a Mac Pro. You've got no doubt over which one of those you are. But in the middle, there is uh, confusion and I think a gap. Yes. I, I think part of the problem that I'm thinking of is not just the number of SKUs, but where they fit within the consumer or pro line and helping people understand whether or not they're a consumer or a pro in terms of needs, right? You don't know which number of cores you need is, is a confusing no. problem. And, and uh, RAM as well. And, I mean, and RAM just, as well and so forth. But yeah. the, you know, it used to be that in that, that matrix of four, the iMac was the consumer-level machine and the Power Mac was the pro-level machine. And that was a fairly simple division. And they had the same for laptops, iBook, and, and PowerBook. And those lines are a little bit muddied now because you have the iMac as a consumer desktop machine. The Mac Mini was traditionally a consumer desktop machine, but now it's a pro machine because it's got 10 gigabit Ethernet options. Not to just throw this in, but the whole pro-consumer line, we've said this before, is a very, very blurry one. I am unquestionably a pro user for certain things at certain times, and the rest of it, I'm not. So give me a straight definition of who I am. That's what I need. Who am I and what Mac do I need? And can you buy it for me, please? Just threw that last one in. I mean, it's a, it's a very tough thing to try and figure out who we are as people and where we fit on different yes. spectrums. And, you know, I, I spend all of my yes. 20s, my formative years, trying to figure that out. And I still don't know how to come to any conclusion. I'm intending to spend my 20s that way. Well, I know you look forward to that. It's going to be good. Yes. 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 Look, nobody's going to check, are they? I can say things like that. Okay. Yes. The The concern, I think, is... That, that these lines are blurred. I, I think the Mac Mini is a great machine. It's a machine that allows some form of expandability in, in terms of using its USB or Thunderbolt kind of attachment ports. Um, just as people tried to do that with the 2013 Mac Pro. The iMac Pro, the same kind of thing. So it's, it's interesting how these lines have become a little bit more fuzzy. Yeah. I, I know that people wanted a Mac Pro. They wanted a traditional tower with expandability with slots, and they wanted it at a price they could afford. Those prices are not low. And Apple is known for its low, low prices. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I, all of this circles around to, is there a gap in price, in desire? Is there a market for something in the middle? Well, logically, yes, there is. Uh, but statistically... Actually, we don't know. Apple knows who buys things. Apple knows uh, very in great detail, detail we will never see, of how many people who get modular or gradable machines ever bother to actually 
upgrade them. Um, I remember Mike Weatherly on Apple Insider uh, looked into this a long time ago uh, when he had lots of data from um, various sources around the time of the old Mac Pro, the, the, the original cheese grater one. And the figures he had were at an absolute peak, 5% of the owners of those machines were changing anything. So modularity, it appeals to me and I see that there's a market for it. But Apple's probably sitting there thinking, actually, William, not so much. Well, they're not. They don't know my well, name. Well, but, but people, you know. people regularly buy things that are greater than their needs. Yes, and one could argue that you should with computers because that way they last longer for you. But yeah, yeah. I didn't. I bought the entry-level Mac Mini. I tend to try and buy the middle model just because it feels like I'm getting a little bit better value. Yes. Well, you are. But I had an exact budget and it covered that one. So I don't regret that. I just wish I could have uh, stretched in more storage as that is giving me uh, problems uh, daily at the moment. But we'll figure it out. Yeah. I want to shift gears completely and entirely. Let's talk about security and vulnerabilities and things like that for a moment. Okay. Um, uh, I was going to make a joke there about how I'm vulnerable, but... Uh, that would just open up the... What are you talking about? Let's go with that. What's, what's troubling <laughs> the you? Honorable William Gallagher, yeah. So, Facebook. We talked about them in the past, haven't we? Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Uh, I know the name. Can't put your finger on it, can you? Uh, don't they do bad things or something? Something. With data. Well, so they, yeah. had this, they had this application, right? They had a Facebook research app that was banned in January for violating App Store review guidelines because they were using their enterprise certificate to collect personal and potentially sensitive information from people. Yes. Right? Remember the snap? Yes. And Have they gone and done it again? They haven't gone about it again, but, but uh, they, they called this their Project Atlas initiative, publicly known as the Research App. Well, they, they had to write a letter. They had to respond to uh, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal and that letter, of course, was seen by TechCrunch. And in their letter, Facebook revealed that 187,000 users, including 34,000 teenagers, had their data collected by this application. Of, the, of those, 31,000 users were in the United States, and 4,300 were teenagers. So they were doing this worldwide. Facebook maintains the operation was driven by analytics, but notes that the app in some cases received non-target information. They didn't review it to determine whether it contained health or financial data. They, they claim they've now deleted all user-level market insights data that was collected, which would include any health or financial data that may have existed. So... They insist that it didn't have any there, or that they didn't review it, and now they can't review it because they've deleted it. Woohoo! So that's all good then. Now, Apple commented on this in a separate letter in March, and Apple said that they didn't know how many devices were running the app, which is deployed using the Enterprise Developer Certificate. And, and of course, that's true because enterprise certs are, develop are, are distributed outside of the App Store, and therefore it's impossible for yeah. Apple to have a handle on who got it or not. Yeah. Unusual for Apple to not know 
something like that, but they can't, so... Well, hmm. it's, I mean... Oh, does that mean it's Apple's fault? No, and no, slash or no, Apple is doomed? no, no. So... Oh, God. Somebody's going to say that. When, when we talk about security, the best security is when something is inaccessible or unknown or, or unknowable. And so enterprise customers want to be able to distribute applications because they, they want them to go to their specific users and not to the public app store. Those applications may have access to sensitive corporate data. They may have, uh, they, they may contain sensitive corporate data. They may be proprietary. There's all kinds of good reasons why those things should be distributed without making the end users go through the app store besides just means of distribution. Because, you know, having your, all of your employees have to hit up the app store to download something is hard as opposed to having the enterprise certificate and just being able to load it on them. And so it makes good sense for Apple to not be able to know this. No, I understand that. I'm fine with it. Let's just make it... Uh, it's easier. Facebook, who's heard of that? Let's all just blame Apple for everything. And, you know, situation normal, really. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, we shouldn't leave Google out. Google is also running a, a product like that that uh, has been exposed. Now, I don't have the numbers in front of me on what their screen-wise meter product saw in terms of users, but um, 187,000 people, which sounds like That's a drop in the f- bucket compared to all Facebook users. But, you know, Facebook can extrapolate from those end sites, and that is not a significant number in terms of a study. Yeah. Okay. That is big. Now, in good news, the head of Google's account sign-in teams is positive about Apple's introduction to the authentication space. So Apple revealed this product called Sign-In with Apple, and they are going to require people who use Sign-In with Google or Sign-In with Facebook in their applications to add Sign-In with Apple alongside it. And someone got a hold of Google and asked them. And so Google product management director Mark Risher revealed in an interview with The Verge that it's preferable for users to employ some form of single sign-on button to get into apps rather than creating users and passwords because people are terrible about users and passwords, right? You you reuse the same username because it's typically an email or because you have an identity formed around using that username, right? Oh, good point. You know, I hadn't thought about the side of using an email address. Of course, I use the email address in several places. That's, I hadn't thought of that. Good point there. Use the same well, one, I, do you? Mm. Uh, yes, uh, Victor. Dot, uh, <laughs> there you go. That's the stuff. Yeah. So, so sorry, I thought over there. I just, I genuinely, and I've, I've, I never use the same username. I never use the same password. I, I use one password to create this stuff, and I love it. It never entered my head that, of course, the username is very often the same uh, for cause. But interesting. Okay, so I'm, I'm a little bit vulnerable there. Uh, I see the point. Uh, sign in. Uh, it's certainly more convenient. I hadn't considered it's also more secure. Uh, Google has a point. Apple has a point. Yeah. And it's way better for users to not have to type in a bespoke username and password or a recycled password, and definitely a recycled username, as we said. And the other thing about Apple's doing it is that they have created a a means of not sharing your actual email address. They they proxy it so that you don't have to share the real email address with that provider, which is good. 
I already do something like that. I have, I, I own a particular website domain, so um, whenever I sign up to somewhere new, I give it an email address at that domain. Uh, so I can write egypt at whatever it is. Um, and then later, when I get loads of spam, address to egypt at this place. I know where it came from. Yeah, and I've been using a, a Google trick for that kind of purpose, too, where I can use my Gmail address and add a plus sign and then any other uh, descriptor after that. And it looks as a unique oh, so address. I hate that. But I loathe it. Oh, it's because fantastic. I get emails uh, that are my Gmail address or very nearly my email address. You know, and it's always spam. It's never somebody who actually mistyped my address. And it's just fed up with right. Google. The, the problem Gmail. is yeah. that the plus symbol isn't respected as a symbol legitimate in email by everywhere, even though it totally fits the, uh, the RFC. But it, but it allows me to filter the same way you are by seeing which one of those things gave away my, my email address. For example, if I put Victor plus BBC at Gmail, then I can go ahead and see. And that's not my email address, by the way, so don't, get, don't, don't try writing to that one. If I, if I do that, then I can see if the BBC gave my email address out. Yes, not that they would. Let's be very clear about this. <laughs> you no. defending the BBC again. There we go. Okay, I have some problems with the corporation, but they employed me for a long time, and they, 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 uh, you wouldn't know this, but in Britain they're currently getting a lot of uh, shtick. Uh, no, no, they're getting a whole lot of thing about licensing fees, which is totally not their fault at this point. Exactly. Thank you. At one point, uh, just to throw this in for scale, uh, the loss of money the BBC was going to face over this would have been the same as the entire radio budget. Uh, all of it, national, local, BBC Sounds, World Service, everything. Yeah. That's how much they're being forced to cut. And as a radio man myself, this upsets me. Sorry, we're off the point there a little bit. Um, so uh, Apple has a point. Google has a point. This is rare, isn't it? They're agreeing with each it's, other. Yes. Well, so Google has for years wanted to get rid of usernames and passwords. And Google has for years wanted to get rid of things like the URL. And so anything that people do to help them in that goal, even if it's not using their service, helps them reach that aim, right? They would much prefer people sign in with Apple than signing in with users and passwords. Yeah. They would, they would much uh, rather people sign in with Google more than sign in with Apple, but that's, that's a distinction. You know, if, if you're going to do it and you're already, you know, pick one of the, the, the good options is basically what they're saying. Two minutes ago, I was happy, and now you mentioned the whole URL thing. Uh, yeah, you tried to send somebody a link, and it's not to where you thought it was because it's Google's. For, I just uh, mutter, mutter. Tell me something nicer. Nice. Happy again. Nicer? You want to be yes. happy again? Apple. Yes, please. Just for a bit. Is in negotiations mm-hmm. to purchase Intel's smartphone modem business. Oh, do you know? I've been up at nights wondering about Intel's smart modem business. <sighs> well, okay. you know, as we said what? before, you are a net job destroyer over there, and. Intel did close up shop and say, yep, you know what? We're putting our smartphone business under. They yes. took it out back. They, 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 they ended it. That's that. And Pink slipped, I think is the, the more polite term. But yes, okay, they did that. But no, <clears throat> here comes Apple. Yes. Apple is said to be looking very, very carefully at Intel's German operations, which serve as the basis for the modem business. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Um, the Intel staff there is comprised of engineers from Infineon's wireless technology arm, uh, which Intel purchased for $1.4 billion in 2011. 
They provided the baseband chips for iPhone from 2007 to 2010. Negotiations have been ongoing since last year. They could fall apart, of course, but if Apple's successful, they will have hundreds of veteran modem engineers. So, sorry, you say this has been going on since last year. So, before this decision, Apple was nudging away. That's interesting. Because my mind goes straight to the staff who've just, uh, I presumed, lost their jobs. But uh, are they in abeyance now thinking, do I get a job somewhere else? Do I hang on for Apple? Or or, or is Intel redeployed people? I'm not positive I know whether or not those folks were redeployed or not. But um, it's interesting because if you look at it, there are a number of, of former Intel execs who were brought into Intel as a part of the Infineon acquisition who now work at Apple. Some were, were from years ago, like Stefan Wolf, who was a former manager of Intel's German modem outfit, came to Cupertino within the past few months. Uh, February, Apple hired Umashankar Thayagarajan, and I apologize if I've mangled that name, who was an engineer who is said to have played a key role in the development of the chipmaker's 5G modem. Now, Intel, as you say, exited the smartphone business in, in April, smartphone modem industry in April. But they could pick up this whole office. They could pick up this whole segment, have hundreds of engineers. And what does Qualcomm think about this? Well, so Qualcomm and Apple settled their agreements in the past, right? They, they've settled that. Qualcomm is currently facing antitrust prosecution in the U.S. Oh, yes. I'd forgotten about that. Yes. Okay. They do like their lawsuits, Qualcomm. Yeah. Well, it's, so it's a difficult thing, right? It's, it's not illegal to be a monopoly, but it is illegal to abuse that monopoly. To act as a monopoly, yes. Okay. Well, to to act in ways that maintain that monopoly through force. Mm. That's naughty. Okay. It is. Well, so, I mean, a classic example. Um, years and years and years ago, Microsoft required that they be paid a, a Microsoft Windows license for every computer shipped, even if the computer didn't ship with Windows on Yes, which is an amazing deal that they pulled off. Yes, for them. Or or years and years ago, when BOS was an operating system, BOS got the deal to be loaded on a partition on Toshiba's. And Microsoft had, as a part of their license agreement, a lockdown on the bootloader so that those machines could not dual boot. Customers bought machines that had Windows and BOS on them, and the machine could not boot BOS out of the box, so consumers thought that they were just not getting as much of their hard drive because it was partitioned. <laughs> right. Okay. Right? Those are abuses of the monopoly that Microsoft had on Windows licenses at that time. I remember assuming that Microsoft had been legally required uh, when you installed some version of Windows, I can't which one it was now, to offer you the choice of Bing or Google for your search, but very specifically required to offer the choice to then not actually do it, because when I would pick Google, it would still set itself to Bing. Um, that seemed uh, Microsoftian. This is a behavior that they do in Europe. They don't necessarily have to show that in the U.S. Right. Okay. I do remember seeing the choice of browsers come up, but uh, the search thing was a European part. Oh, right. Well, my own fault for yeah. living here then. So, so Qualcomm, right? Qualcomm has several key patents on 
technology, especially related to CDMA and related to things like that, they if you want to serve with the carriers that require that technology, then you end up using a Qualcomm chip, which is why Qualcomm's modems were introduced in, in the first iPhones that worked with Verizon in the U.S. The problem is, are Qualcomm abusing that monopoly? And, and that's partly what was going into these patent royalties questions. Right. So, there you go. Perhaps they just like being in court. Maybe it's warm there. Who knows? But I asked you to tell me nice yeah. things, yeah, yeah. and you did. So thank you very much. Well, so here's a nice thing, and let's, let's, we'll end on this one. This is a nice one. iCloud for Windows. Yay. Yay. Apple has updated iCloud for Windows. It's available in Microsoft's App Store, and it makes iCloud function a little more like the, the Microsoft OneDrive cloud storage service in Windows 10. So it's more convenient for use. You can use that that iCloud storage within Windows. You can have the iCloud Drive experience that gives the same sort of technology as, as OneDrive's files on demand feature, which means that mm-hmm. instead of having to manually retrieve things from iCloud, you can have your iCloud Drive folders have files synced within the cloud and your drive so that they're they're available for offline use. That's actually, uh, that's Microsoft and Apple presumably helping each other out. We've just had Google saying nice things about Apple. The world is getting nicer. Excellent point. Thank you very much for that. See, in uh, a bright spot in dark times. Next time I'll ask you for money. We'll see what happens. Okay. (laughs) This This is not the first time that Apple's released products to the Microsoft Store. iTunes for Windows 10 is a part of the Microsoft App Store. And uh, this is this is good. Yes. But uh, the iCloud for Windows app behavior where it has that sort of download for offline sync is very much like the behavior that you get in Mac where we have our desktop and documents stored in iCloud. So I am happy with that. Well, William, that is all the time I have. I am fresh out of time, my most valuable commodity. Yes. Next time, I will ask you for more on the Apple Insider podcast. Where can people find you? Uh, w Gallagher at Twitter and William at AppleInsider.com. All the live long day. What about you? That is the Honorable William Gallagher, everybody. I'm Victor Marks. I'm VMarks on Twitter. I am always found at Apple Insider. And I want you to check out my writings at, uh, at Wristwatch Review. I just published an article there about an interesting thing where I've got a friend who is trying to adopt a little girl into his family and facing staggering legal fees. Wow. He has a GoFundMe. And all of these different wristwatch microbrand companies have gone together, pooled a number of wristwatches that they are raffling off to people who donate to him. And so there are something like 13 different watches available to people who donate to his cause. They've raised over like $10,000 at this point. It's fantastic, and it's all about helping a person and his family become a family legally, and I like it. Excellent. So go there, check that out, and and uh, if you're so inclined, maybe even donate. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll be back next week with more.